The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Clarifying the Complexities of the Expanding Treatment Options for Advanced and Early Stage Hormone Receptor Positive HER2-Negative Breast Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YNC 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello. Welcome, everyone. We're very uh, excited to spend this evening with you. Uh, we hope that you guys will enjoy your dinner and we'll try to provide a decent entertainment for you. Um, so this is a, a peer review session. We're going to be discussing clarifying the complexities of the expanding treatment options for both advanced and early stage hormone receptor positive breast cancer. And we also just want to be clear that we've partnered with uh, GRASP and Living Beyond uh, Breast Cancer, some advocacy organizations uh, for this. We're going to be discussing um, how to overcome existing challenges and disparities, um, trying to highlight patient perspectives um, and share some useful uh, resources from our advocate colleagues. And we're also going to, um, you can review and download the supplemental resource um, and kind of uh, more available online as well. Okay, so this is our agenda. In part one, we're going to be talking about uh, exploring the current and expanding role of approved therapies for hormone receptor positive disease. In part two, we're going to be talking about emerging treatment options on the horizon. And then we're going to come back to some cases that we've kind of called clinical consults here, um, which kind of get into some of the nuance, nuances and some of the gray zone. And then we should have plenty of time uh, to uh, have some discussion around the cases and then also uh, do some Q&A. Okay, so let's get started uh, in approved therapies. So this is our first case. This is a 74-year-old uh, black female, and she has a history of an invasive carcinoma of the breast. Uh, it was a T2 into high grade, ER positive, uh, PR positive at 50%, HER2 1 plus. Uh, she received adjuvant chemotherapy, actually, radiation, and then an adjuvant aromatase inhibitor for four years before she actually discontinued uh, due to side effects that were predominantly joint pain and arthralgias. Five months later, she developed uh, hip pain and imaging revealed lytic bone lesions. She also ended up having small liver metastases. Her liver was biopsied, still ERPR positive, and HER2 negative disease, and she did have genetic testing that was negative for any BRCA alterations. So keep this case uh, in the back of your mind. We're going to go through a little bit of data, and then we're going to revisit this case. Dr. Gratishar is up first, uh, talking about some of the evidence and clinical decisions in the treatment of hormone receptor positive disease. Great. So my job is really to take this enormous paintbrush from 10,000 feet up and make some very broad statements without a lot of detail, um, which I'll try to do quickly. And really what it's meant to do is serve as a platform for the other speakers to fill in the details. So that's really how I'm going to approach this. So if you think about what we have to treat ER-positive breast cancer, and I promise you we're not going to start with Beetson uh, and go forward from that time point. But if you think about the last several decades, we've had a variety of endocrine agents that really served as monotherapy and were, uh, you know, really the uh, main tools that we had to treat ER-positive breast cancer. And then somewhere around, uh, you know, a decade ago, we started to see the strategy of partnering targeted therapy with endocrine therapy, 
which showed evidence that you could enhance the effect of anti-hormonal therapy and perhaps even have an effect in patients who would have otherwise been viewed as uh, perhaps relatively or absolutely endocrine resistant. And then, of course, the era of the last five to seven years or so, we saw the emergence of the CD4-6 inhibitors and the most recent uh, therapy that's really been available to partner with a subset of patients with ER-positive disease is the PI3 kinase inhibitor, Alpelisib. Now, as you know, the box at the far right says, what can we expect? And I think, as I suggested, some of the other speakers are going to fill in that box. But the other thing that's going to fill it in is some of the data that we're hearing even at the meeting uh, in the next couple of days. So I think we'll hear data that will probably, in the not-too-distant future, serve as the next time points on this uh, timeline. Without getting into a debate about which uh, CD4-6 inhibitor is the best or what you should partner it with uh, as an endocrine agent, I think everybody will accept the premise that CD4-6 inhibitors, based on a variety of registration data in the first and second line settings, have really changed how we approach patients with ER-positive disease. The big question comes, what happens after that? So, of course, we think about whether or not a patient has a PI3 kinase mutation, if so, at least entertain the thought of alpelisib in patients. I think it's important to recognize that numerically, the number of patients that harbor a BRCA mutation is actually greater numerically in ER-positive patients than triple-negative breast cancer patients. So in the back of your mind, you always have to think, might a PARP inhibitor be a consideration for ER-positive disease? And then in the absence of a PI3 kinase mutation or a BRCA mutation, then we start thinking about either monotherapy with fulvestrin, if not used, or partnering an mTOR inhibitor with uh, exemestane or even Fazlodex. And what we'll hear from others is what we're doing with this new uh, subset of patients that are either HER2 low or zero, where we may have other drugs that are not endocrine therapy that may have efficacy in this population. So I promise that we're not going to go through all the CD4-6 stuff, but just as sort of, um, you know, a, a place where we can all accept, if you sort of scan the slide, you recognize that whatever CD4-6 inhibitor you partner with an aromatase inhibitor, you're markedly improving PFS, and that's been a uniform finding across the trials. We have data looking at survival, you know, the nuances of these trials with respect to whether they were first line, second line, what the composition of the patients are. So there are some nuances between the trials. And as a result, there might be some subtle differences in terms of which ones have a survival benefit or not. But I think everybody would accept that CD4-6 inhibitors have really changed how we approach patients with ER-positive disease. The newest wrinkle, which I would not say is standard of care, is consideration of using CD4-6 inhibitors in sequence after disease progression, the MAINTAIN trial, presented by Kevin Kalinsky at ASCO, uh, is shown here. And for patients who had gotten largely a PALBO regimen as their initial CD4-6 inhibitor, once they developed disease progression, they were switched to ribocyclid. And as you can see on the left, there was a modest uh, suggestion of an improvement in PFS, as well as some evidence that you could enhance response rate, as well as clinical benefit rate. And of course, we'll hear other trials, including the PACE trial, which will be presented at this meeting as well, that sort of builds on this experience, although importantly, 
the design is very different, so keep that in mind. And then for the patients who do have a PI3 kinase mutation, the SOLAR1 trial, the results of which are shown on this slide, uh, demonstrate an improvement in PS PFS favoring the combination of alpelacib and fulvestran. And as you recall, this was largely a population that lacked uh, exposure to a CD4-6 inhibitor. There were a handful of patients in both arms that did have a CD4-6 inhibitor in the past, and there was a suggestion of activity, but very small numbers. Of course, we have the BELIEVE trial, and HOPE was involved with this, and a larger cohort of patients who had previously received a CD4-6 inhibitor. And with that, we see support of the notion that you could use a PI3 kinase inhibitor post-CD4-6 inhibitor and still expect patients to benefit with a significant fraction of patients still remaining without disease progression at six months. And again, this would suggest that you couldn't use these agents in sequence. Now, what we will, we're not going to talk about other than to say there's a press release. Of course, we know the results are positive. We'll understand what the magnitude of that benefit is. But we now have the potential of targeting the AKT pathway, the PI3 kinase AKT mTOR pathway with a drug Capivisertib. Uh, and this is the Capitello trial. We know from a prior trial, a phase two trial, that in patients who had a mutation in this pathway, the addition of an AKT inhibitor seem to improve PFS, and this is the trial that's a registration trial, looking at in a much larger population of patients, and we'll hear the results of this trial later this week. So in summary, what we have is a number of different strategies that build on uh, endocrine therapy as monotherapy, which we use for many years, and I think what we're going to do when we think about that timeline is fill in the box on the far right of the timeline with a variety of other targeted agents that can enhance the effect of endocrine agents by themselves. And one of the challenges will be figuring out who are the patients that should get what therapy and does sequence make a difference. Great. Thank you so much, Bill. So um, I'm going to leave kind of the discussion of the case for later, but a couple of discussion points um, regarding what you presented, and I'm going to um, ask Hope and Peter to chime in as well. So has um, your CDK46 choice changed, and how are you approaching that right now in the first-line space? Is that to me? You're up first. Okay. Yeah, sorry. So I think based on the data that we've seen more recently, even though there is a compelling argument for, you want the fast answer or the slow answer? I want the, I want uh, okay. the best answer, uh, Bill. The best answer. Okay. <laughs> so the, the, the slow answer is we have a lot of data. The trials aren't all the same. But the most recent data looking at drugs like the drug ribocyclib suggests a more compelling argument for a survival benefit. Uh, abemocyclib also has evidence for a survival benefit. So we've tended more recently to use more ribocyclib. There is real-world experience with uh, palbocyclib suggesting a survival benefit. But again, if you look at the randomized data from the pivotal trials, I think it's most compelling for the other two. Hope? Would you add anything to that? Anything different? Not really. I mean, I have patients who are on uh, Paloma 2, you know, who, uh, which is now closing. I mean, you know, people have been on for more than nine years. I have four patients who've been on. So, you know, it's, it's just hard to put everything together. I think that we do act based on the data that we have at hand. And so, therefore, 
um, in patients who don't have reasons not to get one or CDK4-6 or inhibitor or another, we're going to use the one that has clear survival benefit. Uh, but I think that, you know, that doesn't make me change the people who are on Palvo. And the same with abemaciclib. I mean, now, uh, you know, we're using abemaciclib a lot in the adjuvant setting, as we'll talk about later. And uh, but I think we tend to give it more in the second than in the first line setting simply because of managing the diarrhea. Peter, anything uh, different? Well, I would say I, I would reluctantly change my practice, but, mm -hmm. but, but we have. But, and I think if you look at the two CDK4-6 inhibitors, they're practically identical, ribocyclic and palbocyclic. In terms of structure, there's one methyl group difference. If you look at the preclinical data, they're practically identical. If you look at the primary endpoint of those trials, they are practically identical in terms of the hydration. And they look at the secondary endpoint, and you, you just wonder whether it's play of chance that one drug is positive and the other one isn't. But ultimately, when you sit in front of a patient, they have two drugs, similar efficacy, primary endpoint, similar price, similar side effect profile. And we're going to give you today the drug that doesn't have the survival benefit. That's not, probably not the best strategy. And therefore, reluctantly, we are changing our, 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 our practice to, to, to ribocyclic in this setting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Hope, I'm going to come to you uh, first with this question. So kind of in foreshadowing the rest of what we're going to be talking about today, what would you say, you know, post-CDK4-6 that's really kind of revolutionized the way we treat ER-positive breast cancer, what do you think is the biggest unmet need now? Post-CDK4-6? Correct. Uh, you know, I think that understanding what the appropriate target is um, when a patient's cancer progresses. So, you know, we want to give, you know, full Vastrant or uh, whatever available next-generation endocrine therapy will have. So that's one big question, but I don't think it's the biggest question. So I think that we will have oral certs. They will be better than full Vastrant, uh, potentially in specific populations, but it's going to be a stepwise process, a lot slower than we thought, because it's hard in that setting where patient, where the cancer is already developing resistance mechanisms. But, you know, I think we, pretty good data, you know, there will be oral certs that are better than full Vastrant. Yeah. Uh, and then the question is, what's the right target? So, you know, we have Everolimus, Alpelisib, and we'll have Capivacertib maybe later next year, uh, the AKT inhibitor that will be presented as part of Capitella 291 at this meeting, but already a press release has shown us that the data is positive. Uh, so then, you know, do you give a sometimes, if a patient has oligometastatic disease, do they do better if they get a CDK after a CDK? Do you need to change the CDK46 inhibitor? We'll see data from the PACE trial that looked at the same CDK after CDK, but also added an immunotherapy, a Velumab, a checkpoint inhibitor. Are checkpoint inhibitors appropriate in some settings? We just don't know. What about you, Bill? Well, I think, uh, as Hope said, we're going to have a number of questions we're asking. My own gestalt is that we're, we're all looking for something that's going to have the magnitude of PFS improvement post-CDK that a CDK does, and I think we're going to be disappointed. So one of the questions, I think, will be, can we use these agents post-CDK in sequence, still avoiding the need to go to chemotherapy? Yeah. Um, you know, of course, the issue about the right target, the right patient, of course, that's important. But whether we can delay the time until we have to go to chemotherapy by using these other strategies in sequence. Yeah, that's important. Peter, uh, what's the biggest unmet need for you? Well, I think the first, the, the first point you make is that the patients we see now post-CDK4-6 inhibitor therapy are different to our second-line endocrine therapy patients we, see, we saw in the past. And, and we often see patients with more aggressive disease and slightly more difficult to treat. 
The second consideration for my end, if you, if you go down the route in the first-line setting of giving a dual of, of the combination endocrine therapies, so you're putting two roadblocks in the way, it's, for me, counterintuitive to, to, to use a second-line therapy in the second-line setting. So it's the question around what are the right combination partners. We obviously have the whole PF3KAKTM tour pathway with different drugs coming through at different levels, which actually look relatively similar in terms of efficacy, but with, with, with important differences in the safety profile, and that will be interesting. But I'm also intrigued by the data coming through with CDK4-6 inhibitors, and, and I think the, what, what we tend to do when we can is using liquid biopsies to work out, is it a failure of your endocrine backbone when you have CDK4-6 inhibitors? And if it's a failure of your endocrine backbone by emerging ESR1 mutations, you may keep the CDK4-6 inhibitor in, Whereas if it's not a failure of the endocrine backbone, I think it makes sense to switch the class of the combination agent. Great. Although, you know, it's interesting. I know we have to move on, but, you know, in the um, maintain trial, you know, a lot of the patients had multiple other mutations. Yes. So that makes it really complicated. Abs- absolutely. And it's, it's, it's these acquired mutation profiles are really interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's more complex than, for example, lung cancer, where, where you have one dominant mutation coming through. But here, it's just a, it's an array of different mutations, and I think we will not have one leading drug. Yeah, that's a great point. Okay, so another case to consider. Um, so a little bit of um, some different twists here. This is a 42-year-old premenopausal uh, woman. Um, she had a right breast lump detected via screening, uh, 2.3-centimeter lesion, strong ERPR positive, grade 2, HER2 negative, um, a normal appearing axilla with no adenopathy. And so she goes to a lumpectomy and sentinel lymph node, um, and it turns out she has 2.5 centimeters of intermediate grade invasive ductal carcinoma, uh, no lymphovascular invasion, but a little bit of a surprise. She does have one positive lymph node out of four. Uh, key 67 is low at 10%, and she has an Oncotype DX score of 16. Uh, Bill is still in the hot seat here, and we're going to go through risk assessment and prognostic predictive tools to guide clinical decisions. Great. So I have the same big brush out, and if you were at the session this afternoon, you know that a lot of this was, or at least some of this was discussed this afternoon. So to level set, I think we all appreciate that uh, there's no question that adjuvant endocrine therapy has made a difference in outcome. We recognize that whether you're looking at the ATAC trials, an individual trial, or a composite of all the data with, say, tamoxifen versus an, an aromatase inhibitor on the right from the overview analysis, that AIs are better than tamoxifen with respect to reducing the risk of recurrence. The other observation not only made from this data set, but in general, with adjuvant endocrine therapy, including back to the days of tamoxifen, is half of the recurrences are occurring after five years of therapy. So this uh, leads to the question of whether five years of therapy is sufficient. Can we identify those patients who might benefit from longer durations of therapy and avoid it in others? One of the presentations this afternoon focused on uh, BCI that Ruth Regan gave. So again, there are many different issues, including which is the best endocrine agent in very young patients, should you you suppress the ovaries, and does every patient need chemotherapy in addition to endocrine therapy? So when we try to distill what issues help us in making that decision, uh, if you sort of look at this slide, of course, we look at clinical pathologic factors. This often translates into volume of disease, which sometimes equals risk of recurrence in very crude ways. And we know from the PAN, New England Journal of Medicine paper a few years ago, 
that as you follow patients out for even longer periods of time, even with very favorable staging, there's an accruing uh, number of them that will develop recurrence. And as the volume of disease goes up, bigger tumor, more nodes, 5, 15, 10 years, the fraction of patients who are having recurrence goes up. But we can't rely only on clinical features. We also have now at our disposal prognostic and predictive tools. Uh, I think people are obviously very familiar with uh, uh, the recurrence score, with Mammaprint, uh, I referred to BCI, and there are others that could be considered as well. And then, of course, in response to specific therapies, you can develop mechanisms of resistance, and we're starting to get clever with how we design trials and trying to figure out when that resistance develops and might it be prudent to switch therapy based on the emergence or some suggestion of resistance mechanisms. So if you look at the TaylorX trial, which, uh, as you know, was uh, conducted in patients with uh, node-negative disease, the big question was in those patients who fell into the intermediate range, which was between 11 and 25, and would there be benefit from the addition of chemotherapy to that group. We knew if you had a score of less than 10, that endocrine therapy alone would be sufficient. And the clinical risk that's often incorporated into this analysis as a way of uh, sort of an adjunct to the assay was based on clinical risk, which is shown as low risk being tumors less than three centimeters, grade one, tumors less than two centimeters in grade two, or tumors less than one centimeter in grade three. And then if you look at the forest plot, which looks at the effect of chemotherapy in this population. If you look at all patients with scores between 11 and 25, you can see that the boxes sort of hover around unity, suggesting that there's no big gain from the use of chemotherapy across the entire population. If you look at the patients who are less than or equal to uh, 50 years of age, then you start to see the emergence of some potential benefit with chemoendocrine therapy. And it's true whether you have a low clinical risk or high clinical risk. And again, above the age of 50, which is sort of in the middle, then you're seeing that, again, it's hovering right around unity. So you can make a strong argument for the addition of chemotherapy. The message is very much the same. And that is when you look at the intermediate risk, 11 to 25, and look at whether or not patients got chemotherapy or not, that's the box on the right and the lower right-hand side of the slide, no chemotherapy or chemotherapy, uh, you can see that there's an increasing benefit potentially from adding chemotherapy in those that are less than the age of 50. We also know from the Our Expander trial, which was a node positive trial, uh, up to uh, three positive nodes. Again, this was discussed this afternoon with some nuances about uh, this trial. Patients either got endocrine therapy alone or chemoendocrine therapy. And we see similar things. And on the graphs on the left, postmenopausal patients did not seem to gain much additional benefit from the addition of chemotherapy. It can probably be avoided in that population. Whereas in premenopausal patients, there is an, uh, evidence that uh, chemotherapy does further reduce the risk of recurrence, and it should be part of the treatment for most patients with um, uh, positive nodes in that, uh, that fit the criteria for this trial. Now, with longer follow-up of the soft and text trials, again, we don't have time to go into the details of these trials, but as you recall, uh, one of the trials looked at whether or not ovarian suppression is better than tamoxifen, tamoxifen alone, tamoxifen ovarian suppression, an AI plus ovarian suppression, 
or simply a comparison of tamoxifen ovarian suppression or an AI ovarian suppression. Uh, about 40% of these patients were note positive. We do have long follow-up. And there is a suggestion that with the addition of ovarian suppression, particularly in patients who are at higher risk, and if you remember the design of this trial, it was at the discretion of the physicians whether or not patients received chemotherapy or not. Who were the patients that tended to get chemotherapy? They were younger, bigger tumors, positive nodes, lower PR, uh, lower level of expression of ER. And these were the patients who got chemotherapy, also seemingly those who benefited most. This fourth plot also demonstrates similar findings. And what Meredith Regan did a couple of years ago at ASCO or San Antonio, I can't remember which meeting, was she developed a step analysis which was based on a composite risk incorporating many of the things that I just mentioned, age, size of the tumor, nodal status, PR level, et cetera. And you could have a varying degree of risk and then equate that with the potential benefit from ovarian suppression in these trials. And what it demonstrated is that as your risk, as the step risk composite risk went up based on those features, the potential benefit from ovarian suppression plus endocrine therapy, and in particular, an aromatase inhibitor also increased, so that in some populations, the magnitude of that benefit was in the 10 to 15% range. The last thing I just want to mention, which sort of sits out here like an orphan, is key 67. And this will have some relevance when we talk about Monarch E. So key 67 is often uh, argued as a potential marker for patients at higher risk of disease recurrence in the early stage setting. However, uh, if you talk to any pathologist who looks at this very carefully, they'll tell you that there's not a lot of concordance always between pathologists about how this is actually evaluated. And they feel that uh, with a, um, uh, a committee that looked at the utility of key 67, they found the two areas where they could agree upon most is if it's above 30% and less than 5%. And what's in between is left to a lot of argument and discussion about how much agreement there actually is in what they're seeing. So whether or not this should be used in standard practice, it will probably be dependent on the trust you have in your pathologist to actually evaluate key 67 accurately. So what I would say with uh, those few uh, comments is that endocrine resistance, as we've already mentioned when Erica was asking us questions, is really one of our big challenges uh, not only in metastatic disease, but also uh, trying to identify this as patients go on with endocrine therapy. We do know that uh, the standard clinical features that we've all grown up on, tumor size, nodal status, other features like ER expression, et cetera, do play and have an impact on uh, risk of recurrence. These are important. We also have to look at the levels of expression of estrogen progesterone as well as proliferation rates. And now we're starting to get into looking at the molecular subtype of breast cancer and whether your luminal A or luminal B may also play a role. Um, if patients don't have a suppression of key 67, and this has been done by many of our European colleagues, including Nadia Harbeck and others, uh, including our uh, colleagues in England, looking at key 67 as sort of a surrogate for preoperative therapy, if you get a sufficient decrease in a key 67, it may identify patients who could do well with endocrine therapy alone. So as we go forward, we're going to have to distill all of these different ways of looking at a tumor and then incorporate what we view as the best 
uh, adjuvant therapy for them. I think that's the last slide. Thank, thanks, Bill. I think that was a, a great job in very little time covering uh, what's actually a pretty complicated topic. Um, I'm going to kind of leave maybe the question about chemotherapy or no chemotherapy to when we discuss this case. Um, but Peter, maybe I'll start with you. How do you make the decision about who you're recommending ovarian suppression to uh, for patients that are premenopausal with adjuvant endocrine therapy? I think it's one of the most difficult decisions we have to make at the moment because we know the toxicity is substantially higher in patients who undergo ovarian suppression. Now, I would always say the higher the, the biological and clinical risk is, the more inclined we are to, to combine endocrine therapy with ovarian suppression. Also, the younger the patient is, as you could see in the data, especially in the age group under 35, we, 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 we would feel inclined. As a rule of thumb, if patients have a risk high enough to undergo chemotherapy, I think we need to at least talk about the, the, the combination endocrine therapy. And in those patients, it tends to be slightly easier to, to, uh, to introduce combination endocrine therapy because many of these women are already ovarian suppressed as a result of chemotherapy and that it's easier to, to, to remove that. Whereas if you have someone who doesn't have chemotherapy, starting someone on combination of ovarian suppression and endocrine therapy immediately can, be, can have a substantial impact on the quality of life. Thanks, Peter. Hope, what about you? Is there a rule of thumb about who you think about ovarian suppression for versus not? You know, I've been convinced by the data that <clears throat> women who are much younger, who have very high estrogen levels, um, generally should have at least some degree of exposure to ovarian suppression. There was an interesting study by our Korean colleagues presented at ASCO uh, this year that was an update. And, you know, they gave short duration ovarian suppression. I think it was two years with endocrine therapy. And um, those patients did uh, quite well. So I think you could use a shorter course if you had a patient who's very young, you're nervous about the efficacy of tamoxifen, uh, but, you know, the risk is low and you don't really want to expose them to ovarian function suppression for a total of five years or longer. Um, so that's, that's one help. So very young women. And then, again, the same criteria that Peter uses, you know, if, you, if they have enough cancer to get chemo, generally I think about some duration of time of ovarian function suppression. We have patients who get neoadjuvant therapy, have a lot of residual disease. Uh, but there's another group, which is, you know, patients who have a sort of borderline recurrence score or any recurrence score, I suppose, who have node positive disease. So one positive node, you know, micromet, and, you know, low-grade cancer with a score of five. You know, this is a patient population that I think doesn't benefit from chemo. And although we've seen that in our expander, I think, or responder, they call it now, is, uh, you know, it's, it's just tough to rationalize. It just doesn't make any biologic sense. Generally, when things don't make biologic sense, they don't really pan out. But we're going to wait 10 years to see the data from the, whatever the new trial is called, the NSABP trial. So I, would, uh, I think that that's a population where we're also using at least some exposure to ovarian function suppression and endocrine therapy as well. And, you know, it's a, it's a big, important question. And thank goodness, you know, we'll see the data from the positive trial, which already is press really, I guess, has information out there, is a positive trial. And so, uh, but it's early follow-up. And uh, you know, this is a uh, trial that will be presented on Friday, really important data where, you know, you uh, could stop your endocrine therapy after some relatively short period of time. The median was a little under two years, but in the abstract, but um, then, you know, go ahead with uh, fertility. So family planning and having a baby and those patients, at least in the short term, don't have worse outcomes. So, you know, it, 
it's another way you could stagger your ovarian suppression. Good. There's an interesting ongoing question. Is, in, in younger women, is it a different biology of the cancer or, or is, it, is it a different yes. treatment effect? <laughs> and I don't know whether you saw the data presented by the WSG at the ESMO meeting. And these are preoperative window data where we look at downregulation of Kia 67 as a result of two or three weeks of, of preoperative endocrine therapy. I'm almost very clear as if, if, if patients are treated just with tamoxifen, premenopausal women, there's inadequate downregulation of Kia 67 suppression. But if those women are treated with combination of tamoxifen or AI plus, plus ovarian suppression, the downregulation is even in that high-risk group for, uh, for, in terms of age is as efficient as in postmenopausal women. And for me, that indicates that the differences in outcome are not down to biology, but actually due to inadequate endocrine therapy and enhances the, the, the need to give more combination endocrine therapy if the clinical risk is high enough. Although there is more luminal B disease. This. There is more luminal B disease in younger women. Absolutely. <laughs> so, <point. laughs> so, Bill, sometimes I hear, you know, people kind of being unclear on this whole chemo question and then kind of maybe using ovarian suppression as a compromise. Well, I'm not going to give chemotherapy, but I'll do ovarian suppression. Do you think that's valid or do you think that's really two completely different decisions? No, I think that uh, as we've been discussing, uh, at least in some women, the effect of chemotherapy um, is an ovarian suppression effect. So the examples that uh, Hope was just referring to, where we have a somewhat higher risk, maybe our feeling is, you know, this node positive micromet, but I don't want to give her chemo because everything else about it is favorable. That I would feel quite comfortable in saying that ovarian suppression plus optimal endocrine therapy uh, would be the equivalent of chemotherapy. Not based on a lot of data, but just, you know, I think the biology is the biology. And the last thing I would mention, and I think others have alluded to this as well, is, you know, despite our enthusiasm for using ovarian suppression in some young women, some women do not like it. And, it, it, you know, the, the side effect profile of ovarian suppression in a 35-year-old, they ain't ready to be postmenopausal yet. And they've stopped. Yeah, great point. Okay, so case three, um, same age as the case we were talking about before, a 43-year-old premenopausal uh, female. She presents uh, with a mass in her right breast that she actually found. Um, ultrasound reveals about a four-centimeter <laughs> mass. It's intermediate grade. She has enlarged axillary adenopathy. Uh, she does have a lymph node biopsy that's positive for cancer. She has systemic staging. Uh, this is negative. And she actually ends up going straight to mastectomy and lymph node dissection. She ends up with 4.3 centimeters of grade 2, a lobular carcinoma, a large number of positive nodes, eight nodes, uh, and is obviously still ERPR positive and HER2 negative. So Dr. Rugo, uh, we'll turn it over to you at this point. So um, I, we're talking about now in um, hormone receptor positive early breast cancer, what treatments can we give? And of course, we're going to talk about the abemaciclib data. We know that, uh, you know, although, and we've been talking about this, and we saw actually really interesting data on the Taylor X trial, I think, that today that sort of emphasized this. We've already seen it from the early breast cancer trials group in our own practices that patients continue to have a recurrence risk long after the end of their adjuvant endocrine therapy. And so in these uh, patients, you can see here from the early breast cancer trialist group, uh, there is continued risk of recurrence despite endocrine therapy, which improves the risk. 
The risk continues out to 20 plus years. The latest recurrence that I've seen in a patient with hormone receptor positive disease was 32 years, which is really on the outside, but I think most of us have seen patients that fit into a rather odd category. So with this in mind, of course, there's been a lot of interest in trying to see uh, whether or not we could do two things. Uh, one is overall to reduce the risk of recurrence in hormone receptor positive breast cancer and then above uh, what we already give patients in, with endocrine therapy and chemotherapy when indicated, although we seem to be a little bit confused about that at the moment. Um, and But then the second question was, could you identify a group of patients who has an early risk of recurrence for ER-positive disease and focus your trial on the patient population? In other words, that was twofold. If you have a drug you want to get approved, you want to get early results, you don't want to wait for 20 years to see your results. I mean, look, in Taylor X, we're still seeing, I mean, I think it was a huge increase in the number of events from the last presentation to this one. So, you know, you want to have understand which cancers recur early. Uh, but also for our patients, that's where we're really frustrated. We do everything right, and the cancer comes back early. I mean, you know, even though we've given the chemo and the endocrine therapy and ovarian function suppression. So they used actually the Monarchy uh, study group, uh, used data from the HICAM group, which is a cooperative group in Spain, as well as some other data, and really made the eligibility criteria based on uh, what they'd seen in a collection of patients in different trials that had earlier recurrence or shifted to the left. So uh, Monarch E, as you know, took patients who'd received whatever standard neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy they were having, and then endocrine therapy had staging that showed no metastatic disease, and they could be a long time from surgery, 16 months from surgery to randomization, and they could have had three months of endocrine therapy. Um, so they, you know, some of these patients were uh, reasonably far out who got adjuvant therapy. To be eligible for cohort one, you could have had four or more positive nodes. That's it. Or if you had one to three positive nodes, you had to have at least one of either grade three disease or a tumor size greater or equal to five, uh, five centimeters. And then we included a little group. Now, if you look at that little uh, pie chart in the bottom uh, right, um, you can see that the intent to treat population, that was the biggest cohort, right? That was 91% of the patients in the trial. Um, but 9% of the patients were in this little cohort to try and understand the impact of K67 on early recurrence. We already believed it was a prognostic factor, but there's a lot of trouble with validation. So Monarchy used centrally confirmed K67, um, and patients had one to three positive nodes, and they couldn't have had the features in cohort one, right? So grade one to two, tumor size under five centimeters, and a K67 of at least 20%. So that was an interesting thing. I mean, we had some people at outside key 67 that didn't actually weren't confirmed centrally, but most people were, so that was helpful. And then the stratification was chemo, menopausal status, and region. Uh, patients were randomized to two years of abemaciclib at 150 twice a day, or endocrine therapy, and you can see it's a very large trial over 5,600 patients, um, and then, of course, ongoing follow-up. And they took this treatment for two years but continued their endocrine therapy with a primary objective of invasive disease-free survival. And then secondary objectives included looking in the high key 67 population, distant recurrence, of course, overall survival, uh, safety, of course, all the other issues, patient-reported outcomes, very important in a treatment like this in a curable patient population where, you know, we we're giving people two years of therapy. So um, this was the current analysis. These are hot off the press, the slides that were presented this afternoon by Stephen Johnston and published today in Lancet Oncology. 
Uh, and you can see that the cutoff date was July 1st of this year. There's a median follow-up of 42 months. Um, there is a marked increase in invasive disease-free survival events. It went from 565 in the publication uh, by Nadia Harbach, presented by Joyce O'Shaughnessy at ESMO 2021, to 835 now. And you can see that all patients are off-study treatment, so regardless of the reason why they came off. So there's a lot of different planned interim analyses and different criteria for them. But this one is the overall survival analysis that two years after the primary outcome analysis, and there is still ongoing follow-up until final, which is event-driven. So here you can see what was presented. And I was really impressed by this data, which we were able to first see as part of the steering committee at ESMO, a hazard ratio of 0.664, very statistically significant, so it's not certainly worse. But what's really striking here is that it's better. So look at the red bar there at the bottom. That's a bemaciclib duration. There's a 33.6% relative reduction in the risk of developing an invasive disease-free survival event. And relatively, it went from 2.8% at two years, the difference, the absolute difference, to 4.8% at three years, and now at four years, it's 6.4%. So that's fascinating because the only drugs we've ever seen that we feel have a carryover effect, um, in other words, still reducing recurrences late afterwards, are, is endocrine agents, you know, first seen with tamoxifen, where outcome was still better at 15 years if you took five years versus two years of tamoxifen. So this is really very impressive data, and the first time we've seen this with a targeted agent other than trastuzumab, I think. Um, so then if you looked at the pre-specified subgroups, you can see all the little circles or diamonds uh, line up to the left of one, uh, with very small subgroups being a little bit harder to interpret. Uh, but overall, patients did very well. And you can see that if you look at grade two and grade three, all those diamonds are to the left. Um, and uh, also uh, chemotherapy groups, everybody benefited. And then you looked at the pre- and post-menopausal women as well, and all of those patients, they're very, very well-powered. Uh, both of those groups of patients also benefited. And then distant recurrence-free survival is really important for us, um, as, of course, in clinical practice, that's what we really care about for events. And somebody was talking about that in the questions, I think, today. What were the events in one of the trials? And here you can see that the difference in events is almost all distant. And that has to do, I think, I really believe, due to the selection for eligibility in this trial, which is very good, so 34% relative reduction of distant recurrence-free survival event. Big, the curves are separating more after finishing abemaciclib than even they did during the time patients were on. So you're still seeing that carryover effect. Um, and then at four years, the difference is 5.9% compared to 25 and 4.1%. So again, a bigger difference over time. Really impressive. Um, and then this just shows you the uh, benefit deepening over time. And I have a little box there. So at year three, you can see the IDFS hazard ratio 0.6 and DRFS uh, 0.581. Um, so again, this is, you know, all allocated looking at landmark analyses and piecemeal hazard ratio, but it's, um, I think, still really very interesting and impressive. Uh, the, the abstract title was penned as overall survival, but it's still immature, which is a great thing for our patients also. Uh, not statistically significant. There are more events in the endocrine therapy alone arm, but not it's not a huge difference. And patients overall, uh, but even who have had recurrences, um, are still alive and now with this 44-month uh, medium follow-up. Um, and uh, they, you know, he showed some bar graphs of the number of patients who were living with metastatic disease, and there are more patients living with metastatic disease in the control group than there are in the abemaciclib group. 
And key 67, these curves also, they just keep separating more over time. Um, so you can see here the uh, dotted lines are the key 67 low in cohort one. And then the cohort one key 67 high are in the solid lines. And you can see that the curves are very widely separated. And key 67 remains prognostic, but it doesn't predict abemaciclib benefit because both groups of patients benefited from abemaciclib. Uh, location of first recurrence is also interesting, and in both groups, distant recurrence is the most common location of first recurrence, um, and there was a lower incidence of those distant recurrences in the abemaciclib arm, although those differences are from the previous analysis at three years. We don't have it from the four years yet um, and are lower. And then safety findings are all consistent with the previous analysis. There's no new safety findings. Um, and of course, everybody's off treatment, so that you know you're not going to see. We don't see late toxicities from these drugs. You stop the drugs, toxicity goes away. Um, your hair grows back. All those things. Your diarrhea stops. Your counts return to normal. We don't see a, a long duration of effect. Uh, but diarrhea was the most common toxicity. I'll show you when it occurred in just a moment. And venous thromboembolism is increased, but it was primarily increased, and I've shown you that in the little uh, words at the bottom there. Uh, it was almost uh, three times as great with tamoxifen versus AI in a data we recently published. Um, and dose reductions occurred, and, you know, Stephen just had these right off his tongue when he was giving that oral presentation, 43.6% dose reductions um, and discontinuations just under 19%. Um, and then this shows you the diarrhea. Now, remember that after the first three months, a lot of people dose reduced and some people discontinued. Uh, but we found that actually, you know, dose reducing works really well, and almost all of my patients took at least a half a pill of uh, loperamide every day for prevention. So uh, the FDA, of course, approved abemaciclib last year based on the three-year medium for survival, but for inexplicable reasons, they say safety-related, a little bit unclear, they only approved it in the patients who had a key 67 of 20% or greater. But the ASCO guidelines, the NCCN guidelines, all recommend that we use the, the eligibility in the trial itself, and I think this just solidifies the use of the eligibility in the trial itself. Um, and then this also shows you the EMA uh, recommendations, which again, use the trial eligibility rather than the, um, the FDA guidelines. Um, Natalie is an ongoing adjuvant CDK4-6 inhibitor trial, as you know. Uh, ribociclib was uh, dosed in the metastatic trials at 600 milligrams. Data presented at ASCO showed that 400 and 600, if you needed to dose reduce, you still had the same good outcome. There will be data from the AMELIE trial, which I would recommend everybody here later this week, that is actually a randomized trial that started with 400 versus 600. Um, but 400 milligrams was used. It's three years as opposed to two years for that later recurrence risk. 4,000 patients uh, randomized in this trial, which had completed accrual uh, a year ago, March. And uh, we hope to see data in the near future. Thanks, Hope. <clears throat> so um, I guess to kind of put into context, Bill, I'll ask, I'll ask you this question. You're back in the hot seat now. Um, you know, ovarian suppression, we do that, and our magnitude of benefit is 2 3%. So when we look at, you know, abemaciclib, and now we're kind of seeing a 6% difference in, you know, recurrence, how... How important do you think this is? I mean, are you universally offering all of your patients that would be eligible for ABIMA, ABIMA? We are talking to them. So if they meet the criteria, um, we feel comfortable offering it to patients. <clears throat> and I think, as Hope was suggesting, I think we've learned how to manage, you know, one of the concerning side effects that many people had with ABIMA, which is the GI symptoms, diarrhea in particular. 
And I found, you know, from that standpoint that most patients, there are exceptions, but most patients can tolerate it. And if they have to use uh, low modal or have a dose reduction, their, their lifestyle isn't impacted. So for the patients who meet the criteria, we would offer this. Yeah. And Hope, is that who you're offering it to? I mean, are you offering it universally to everybody that would have met the criteria? Are you picking and choosing? Are you offering it to anyone that wouldn't have met the criteria? My clinic is full of women who, you know, you get to know really well and who are lovely people who have metastatic breast cancer and will die of that disease. So I do give a bamacyclib to everybody who meets the criteria for uh, monarchy. And I have to say that there's a group of patients where even my colleagues have recommended it where I might not have. But, you know, people who've had mastectomies and then have local recurrences in skin and the breast. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, these are patients where you just worry so much. I think, you know, we have to balance toxicity, but it's two years. And I've generally found that by, you know, managing the dose, et cetera, we can have people have pretty good quality of life. And another thing we do is we give minoxidil um, at a low dose for people who are having thin hair and it works also amazingly well. So these are big quality of life issues for patients. So yes, I use the eligibility. What about, what about you, Peter? Any, anything to add there? I think it's a big step forward. But, but, but as you, you mentioned the benefit with ovarian suppression. And I think one of the points to consider is we, the, it's not always a big leap we are making. Mm -hmm. It's the addition of small yeah. increments. And if, if you have about a 15% relative benefit with ovarian suppression, another 15% relative benefit with the AI, you have another 17% if you give the bisphosphonate then in, in, in the postmenopausal situation. And there you have a 35% relative benefit on top of that with a bemocyclic. That's a traumatic overall improvement in outcome achieved by four different drugs we, we, we have introduced over the last four years. And so I think it is, it is a really important uh, step forward. I was impressed about how those data, are, how, how those curves are continuing to separate. And that was one of my initial concerns two years ago, where, where I thought, is, is it just, are, are those curves coming back together? And there's no hint of that. In fact, they're, they're, they're separating further, which, which, is, which is really reassuring. One of the groups that isn't covered in there and has come up in our clinical practice a few times, and it's these patients where pathologists are sitting on the fence, so it's a grade two tumor, you've got two positive lymph nodes, and you've got a Kia 67 of 15%, but you have a high oncotype result. What do you do in that? And, and, and again, we, we, in the UK, we're often a little bit more restrictive than, 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 than you probably hear in, in the US. But this is a group, if I think about biology, that's a group where I would also like to extrapolate the data. Uh, uh, but it would be interesting to, to hear how everyone else feels. I have to say that was very nicely said, yeah. the incremental gains. <laughs> it is. It's the stair-step approach, right? We're just climbing the stairs. Yeah. No, but I mean, you know, I think Hope and I, when we first saw the data of abemocyclib, we were excited. It's a positive trial. But then we were kind of all like, ooh, is it going to come back together, right? I mean, we certainly haven't yeah. seen that. I mean, it's... Penelope. You know, I mean, very, very um, gives a lot of confidence that we truly are pre preventing people from recurring, right? Okay, so we're going to move to part two here. And so we're going to move to emerging treatment options for hormone receptor positive disease. And here we're going back to case one. Um, so remember, this was our 74-year-old lady um, who had done the four years of AI. She'd stopped for arthralgias. She recurred five months later. Um, and so what we picked was fulvestrant with palbociclib for her. And she actually got benefit out of this for a little bit over two years, uh, 26 months. 
And then she actually developed asymptomatic progression in the bone, and she also had uh, two new 1.5-centimeter liver lesions, normal liver function. And at that point, uh, we did a complete NGS for her, and really the only mutation of note was an ESR1 mutation. Peter is up with the emerging role of novel ER targeting agents. Brilliant. So we, we obviously spoke about combination endocrine therapy already, but this is, this is just about the endocrine backbone. And, and I have to apologize. I'm taking you back to basic biology of estrogen receptor signaling because I think it's really important that we understand this if you try to work out what endocrine therapies to use. You all know the structure of the estrogen receptor. Basically, when estradiol binds to it, two receptors are coming together. There are two activation functions which ultimately ultimately pass on the signal to, 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 to the DNA. They are differently regulated, and it's important to understand those differences but they are, because they're relevant for, for, for resistance. You see the two receptors coming together. You see the co-regulatory proteins coming together, and ultimately uh, it results in estrogen-related transcription. Now, if you look at the principles of single-agent endocrine therapies, they're, 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 you, we used to say there are two main differences in drugs. There are drugs that take ultimately estrogen away, and that's in premenopausal women, we switch off the ovaries with ovarian suppression, but also, of course, in pre- and postmenopausal women with aromatase inhibitors that stop the production of estrogen. But we also have drugs that interfere with the receptors, where we don't, where we don't reduce the amount of estrogen in the body, but we interfere with estrogen as it binds to the estrogen receptor. And one group is what we call the SERMs, selective estrogen receptor modulator, that bind to the receptor but compete ultimately with estrogen. And the second group is what we call the SERDs, selective estrogen receptor downregulators. They bind, but in addition to binding, they also reduce the amount of the estrogen receptor. And this downregulation of the estrogen receptor is probably most relevant in those patients who have what we call estrogen or ligand-independent uh, activation of the estrogen receptor. So if you again look at this in a little bit more detail, what tamoxifen does, it ultimately only switches off one of the activation functions, but the, 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 this, the estrogen receptor is still partially active, and so rather than that, we have stopped transcription, we have an auto-transcription, whereas if you look at fulvestrin, that's the clinically relevant at the moment CERT compound, it stops both activation functions by breaking down the estrogen receptor and leads, therefore, to an almost complete antagonism. Now, if you look at this in, an, in a cancer cell, what are the three different scenarios in terms of hormone sensitivity or resistance? Now, if you have a truly hormone-sensitive estrogen receptor, any endocrine therapy is probably going to respond. And if you look at some of the comparison between the different endocrine agents, they have a similar response rate in truly endocrine-sensitive disease. But where you will see a difference is in the duration of response, because as resistance is emerging, two of the resistance mechanisms come in, and there are differences between the endocrine agents when it comes to the different mechanisms of resistance. One of the differences is, if you look at the estrogen receptor, in some cells, the estrogen receptor itself gets altered. And this is what this green blob is supposed to indicate on the estrogen receptor. And this can happen through mutations. ESO1 mutations, you're all aware of this, they change the estrogen receptor, but it can also happen through phosphorylation of the estrogen receptor, for example, through other signaling pathways. The result is very, very similar. The receptor gets switched on even if no estrogen is around. And that's what we call ligand-independent activation. What does it mean? 
If you give a drug such as anostrozole or letrozole, an aromatase inhibitor, which reduces the amount of estrogen, but if the receptor is switched on whether there's estrogen around or not, this drug is not going to provide any benefit to, to, to those receptors. Whereas, in fact, if you use a CERT compound that doesn't just block the estrogen receptor, but also take the estrogen receptor out of the equation, we'll see a, a highly effective agent. If you look at this in clinical practice, I'm sure you've all seen the data. For me personally, one of the highlights of last year's San Antonio, <coughs> of the Paramon Giles Small study by the French group. And this was in patients with endocrine sensitive disease that received aromatase inhibitor and palvocyclib, and then had regular monitoring for emerging mutations, in particular for possibly emerging mutations of ESO1. What they found is that in, in, in about just over, uh, over a quarter of patients, there was, an inc there was suddenly an emerging ESO1 mutation detected in the blood without the tumor showing signs of disease progression. So we are looking at subclinical progression before it has become clinical. And these patients were then switched, continued on pulvocyclic, but switched in terms of the endocrine backbone from aromatase inhibitor to full vestigial. And what you can see is a substantial increase in activity, nearly doubling of progression-free survival in that setting. And that's clearly one of the first examples where we tailor therapy to emerging mutations and emerging resistance in, 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 in this setting. If we look at this second scenario of endocrine resistance, or the third scenario in terms of how, how cells respond to estrogen manipulation. And this is what I always describe as, as alternative signaling. If you, if you compare it with a river going down, a, a river flowing full of water, you put a dam in the river, the water gets backed up for a while and then tries to find a way around this. And this is what happens in cancer cells as well. The cancers use other pathways, can be CDK4-6 inhibitor signaling, or PO3-KM-TOR pathways, the two dominant driver. But this alternative signal in this bypass route allows the cells to drive, to drive proliferation independent of the estrogen receptor. And if you have alternative signaling, you need combination therapy. Just putting one roadblock in there isn't, isn't going to be enough. Now, if you look at the different compounds we have, we spoke about aromatase inhibitors, we spoke about CERTs, and we have a new generation of CERTs coming through the so-called oral CERTs. And these drugs probably provide most of the benefit in patients with ESO1 mutations. But there are other compounds, as you can see here, so-called CERCAS, selective estrogen receptor complete antagonists. And as you can see, they, they have an even more effective switching off of the, of the agonist activity of the estrogen receptor. You have Protax. Again, Protax is a, is, is a form of, pro, of Protax that's binding to the estrogen receptor and leads to increased degradation through a different mechanism. And again, you have serans as a, as a complete antagonist through a different mechanism on the estrogen receptors. So subtle differences in how those new drugs work, but all of them have a more substantial downregulation of the activity of the estrogen receptor. If you look at the CERTs, probably the, one of the most researched areas at the moment in, in, in breast cancer therapy, there are five compounds that have been in trials or are in trials for metastatic and for, yeah, for early, uh, early breast cancer. I'm not going to go through all of them in detail. You're aware of the emerald data, again presented a year ago in, in, in San Antonio, one of the first of the oral certs to, show, to, to, to prove positive results in a phase three trial in pretreated patients. Hazard ratio, 0.69 in all patients in the ITT population. But it's really important to look at subgroups of this study than of other studies coming through. Where would you expect an oral cert to provide most of the benefit looking at the biology? 
possibly in patients with ESO1 mutations, which are often acquired mutations. If you look at the data, again, in the MRL study, patients with ESO1 mutations, hazard ratio 0.54, very substantial benefit in terms of the hazard ratio, not in terms of absolute uh, median progression-free survival by switching to, to an oral CERT compound. But if you look at the same study at patients without ESO1 mutations or had wild type, you see very little difference. Hazard ratio is only about 0.86, and that taken alone would not have been uh, something that, that, that got us really exciting in, in, in this treatment setting. Why I'm sharing you the details of these trials? Because I think it's important to be aware of this if you look at the upcoming data of the different CERT compounds. We have already seen the data with the ilacestrant or the emerald study benefit largely driven by years of one mutant patients, and that was about 48% of patients in, in, in this trial population. If you look at the data with um, amcinistrant, which has, uh, has since been discontinued because of a lack of activity, but again, if you look at the second-line data, we see a hazard ratio of 1 in all comers, but we see a, a, an indication of possibly a benefit in patients with ESO1 mutations, where the, where the median PFS is 3.7 versus 2 months. If you look at chiridestrant, again, it was classified as a negative trial in terms of the randomized phase 2, overall hazard ratio of 0.81. But if you look at the benefited ESO1 mutant patients, very similar to what we saw with elacestrant, with a hazard ratio of 0.6, it was just, it happened that in this trial, there were only 39% of patients who had ESO1 mutations, fewer than in the, in, in, in the emerald study, which probably was one of the reasons why the trial was not positive in the overall population. We have seen a press release for Serena 2 in the same indication that the trial is positive, and will be interesting to see whether that benefit is also seen predominantly in patients with ESO1 mutation. Last slide is really on the other drugs. Circa, HCB is the, most, the best known drug at the moment. Serans, OP1250, or Protag, ARV471, are all moving from phase one gradually into other trials. In fact, ARV is, is, is already entering phase three trials. The last point to make is the most effective endocrine therapy isn't going to work anymore if the cell is independent of estrogen receptor signaling. And that was one of the findings, really, in the Emerald study, which showed an impressive hazard ratio. But because the majority of the cells were no longer estrogen receptor responsive, most of the patients did not benefit, and therefore the, the overall median progression-free survival was relatively short. So when we develop these new estrogen receptor agents, we need to, first of all, understand the biology, where to go with them, but secondly, also need to be able to select patients who still have, e have estrogen receptor responsive disease or are completely refractory. Thank you. Thanks so much, Peter. You know, it, I, like you, you know, have, have looked at these curves, and there, it's clear that there's 40 to 50% of patients kind of on the top of these that just progress at the first scan regardless of what arm they're on, right? They're not endocrine-sensitive anymore. So, you know, do you think that, it's really the ESR1 story, or do you think that that's just the best surrogate we have to enrich for patients that are a little bit more likely to be endocrine sensitive? So I think the ESR1 is not, it isn't necessarily telling us those patients are uh, hormone refractory. In fact, they're hormone sensitive, the ESR1 right. mutation. So I think it's, it's what, what, we, what I'm more worried about is those patients we can't identify that they are hormone refractory. And this first cliff you mentioned in those trials is something we can't really identify well enough who are those patients who have no longer a hormone responsive tumor. 
That's for us clinically the biggest problem. And as the patients are now coming out of CDK4-6 inhibitor therapy, often with more aggressive disease and visceral metastasis, you haven't got much time to work out whether those patients are still home and responsive. And that's one of the reasons why we're often moving forward with, with ADCs or chemotherapy earlier than we would have done in the past. Thanks. Hope, what's, what's your thought on the ESR1 story with these agents? Um, you know, I think that we've now seen uh, three different trials where the oral surd seemed to be better than fulvestrant and ESR1 mutant disease, even though the other two trials weren't powered to look at that and ended up being negative trials. Uh, but, you know, all three were better. And I don't know that we're going to um, see in Serena 2, which will be presented later this week, um, I don't know that we'll see that or not. So that will be interesting as yet another oral surd. Um, so I do think that um, in Elicestrant, you know, originally in its very early studies also showed a benefit in ESR1 mutants. So I think that it's a real story that fulvestrant works less well in ESR1 mutant disease and these agents work better. Um, and I think that we can generally find ESR1 mutations in blood fairly easily as we're going, you know, towards the end of first-line therapy. But um, I think people, you know, patients who can afford an oral CERD when it's available will vote for an oral CERD instead of an injectable medication unless they have, you know, a lot of GI toxicity or something like that, light sensitivity, whatever it is, um, because I think that people don't like the injection. They don't like being tied to the infusion center. Yeah, Absolutely. I think the combination with targeted agents is the huge unanswered question now because the FDA still wanted to have, uh, at least according to our colleagues, uh, fulvestrant as, and even now still wants to have fulvestrant as a control arm, which is, uh, I think, unfortunate because most of us are trying not to give fulvestrant alone. Mm. We give it in combination if we can. Single agent endocrine therapy is not, isn't effective if you already had combination therapy in the first line setting. It's counterintuitive for me. So then all these randomized trials that are, have done, are being done, are being designed, will all have fulvestrin as a single-arm control, which is, I think, really unfortunate. Yeah. Bill, do you see a role for these agents kind of beyond this post-CDK? I mean, what do you think about, you know, first line in combination with CDKs or early yeah, well, those, those, I mean, certainly endocrine resistance is less of a problem there, right? Yeah, so those trials are being done. I mean... Um, you know, a few of the companies are swinging for the fences, as the saying goes, with launching uh, adjuvant trials when they barely have the data in the metastatic setting. So I think that there may be some merit in doing that. You know, I think in the metastatic setting, as the others have said, I think this is going to be preferred over an IM shot. But based on the data we have right now, I think it's not a game changer, but it's an incremental improvement. Mm-hmm. So will it have a greater magnitude of benefit in earlier lines or first line setting? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Great. Okay, Hope, back to you uh, to talk a little bit about antibody drug conjugates to continue what you've been doing today. Sasatizumab govotecan, our first in class trope 2 antibody drug conjugate. Now there's a second trope 2 ADC with a different toxin, datapotumab deruxtecan. Um, So uh, trope 2 is a transmembrane uh, receptor that's been linked to poor prognosis and tumor progression. It's highly expressed, and in fact, as I presented today in Tropics, it was expressed at least to some degree in 95% of breast cancers uh, that had hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease. 
um, and it's approved in the triple negative setting uh, in patients who received at least one uh, line of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. So as part of the umbrella trial for sasetizumab, where they all also looked at urothelial cancers, uh, there was a subgroup of 54 patients who received uh, sasetizumab who had uh, pre-treated hormone receptor positive HER2 negative disease. They had a median prior lines of chemo of two and a response rate of about 31%, uh, as well as a, a reasonable progression-free survival in this setting of 5.5 months. And you can see the waterfall plot below. So that led to the design of the ASCENT trial, looking at sasetizumab and hormone receptor positive metastatic breast cancer. And I will uh, mentioned that there will be data from the other TROPE 2 ADC datapotomab deroxycan in an umbrella trial uh, in, that will be presented at this meeting in a poster discussion. So Tropics randomized patients who had metastatic hormone receptor positive uh, breast cancer, and they had received a CDK4-6 inhibitor. That's an unusual trial. Everybody got a CDK4-6 inhibitor and a taxane, as well as one endocrine therapy and at least two but not more than four lines of chemotherapy for metastatic disease. Uh, 543 patients were randomized to sasetizumab versus treatment of physician choice, including capecitabine, venerobine, gemcitabine, or aribulin, with a primary endpoint of progression-free survival by blinded independent central view, and a secondary endpoint of overall survival, as well as the other usual suspects, response, patient-reported outcomes, and safety. The stratification were visceral METs, endocrine therapy for six months or longer for metastatic disease, and the lines of chemotherapy two versus three or four. Progression-free survival was significantly improved in the patients who received sasetizumab versus treatment of physician choice. And I will point out in this patient population, 95% of the patients had visceral metastases, and they were a median of four years from initial diagnosis of metastatic disease. Uh, so it's a, a, a unique population in terms of being late line, and all had CDK4-6 inhibitors. The hazard ratio is 0.66, so 34% relative improvement in PFS, and the p-value 0 0.003. There has been note about the fact that the median difference is 1.5 months. If you look at these curves, it's actually now, I could use my little green arrow. It looks like a little bit like the LSS trend data where you see this rapid fall off that we were talking about earlier where we're not really good at figuring out who's resistant to the treatment we're giving them. In this case, patients had received a lot of prior chemo, so they had relatively resistant disease with uh, progression in the first at the first scan. But if we looked at uh, the landmark analyses, six, nine, and 12 months, at each time point, there were more patients alive and free from progression who received sasetizumab versus TPC. Um, and then we also looked at the HER2 low and IHC zero groups, not because it has anything to do with HER2, uh, because, but it was just because DBO4, Destiny Breast 4 had been presented. There was a lot of excitement about HER2 low, and there was interest in understanding whether or not just chemo in general worked differently in these groups. Because we did not centrally confirm the HER2 low status, it's a different group. It was all based on whatever pathology report we received. And we know that the concordance between, say, zero and one plus in a recent study from Yale was about 26% among eight pathologists. So, you know, it's hard to know how much to trust this, but sasetizumab was effective in all of these subgroups. And then in the second interim analysis, we showed a uh, significant improvement in overall survival. Uh, with a 3.2-month absolute increase and a relative uh, improvement of 21%, p-value 0.02. And at one year, 61% of patients who received sasetizumab were alive versus 47% who received TPC. In the subgroup analysis, uh, all the subgroups benefited. The only thing that's to the right there is the people who didn't have visceral mets, but that was only 5% of the population. So it's a tiny little group 
as you can see, and uh, impossible to really assess. Uh, so across our pre-specified subgroups, overall survival was better in all three, the chemo, visceral mets, and endocrine therapy for a longer time. Overall survival was significantly improved with a hazard ratio of 1.63, um, as was clinical benefit rate, as you can see, from 22 to 34 percent, and duration of response. And then there was a significant delay in time to deterioration of global health status and quality of life uh, that favored sasituzumab, as well as a significant delay in time to deterioration and fatigue. There was no time difference in pain, uh, but the others were significant. In terms of safety, the safety profile was really very similar to what we saw with Ascent. I've seen in clinical practice that if we give sasituzumab earlier, we see less immediate neutropenia, so it happens later. You need to use less growth factor, uh, but it's very much dependent on the individual patient. There was one patient who died in tropics uh, from treatment-related toxicity, and that patient was both neutropenic and had uh, diarrhea, which is a bad combination, and had uh, essentially neutropenic colitis. Um, so it is a real important lesson that if a patient has any mucosal damage, first of all, you should think they might be neutropenic. Somebody says, my mouth is sore, they're having bad diarrhea. Think, could they be neutropenic? And you need to treat their neutropenia and give them antibiotics because um, the bacteria can go across the mucosal barriers. Uh, but otherwise, the other um, uh, deaths in that study were all related to other events. Um, there is a planned first-line study in hormone receptor-positive metastatic breast cancer called ASCENT-07. Um, and then the uh, SASCA trial is a post-neoadjuvant trial that includes a subgroup of patients with hormone receptor-positive disease, but have high-risk disease based on residual uh, disease after neoadjuvant therapy. And this trial has recently slightly increased its numbers. I think it's about 1250 now uh, to try and improve their power to detect a difference in the triple negative and ER positive population. Um, and then there's a first-line uh, phase two trial that's looking at sasituzumab, uh, govotecan with uh, pembrolizumab in, or not. Uh, and it includes both a triple negative and a hormone receptor positive group. Um, so that will be interesting as well. There are two first-line trials, both for PD-L1 negative and PD-L1 positive with sasituzumab compared to treatment of physician choice. Uh, Datapotumab can I mentioned earlier, uh, and uh, this uh, is an interesting ADC that has a lower drug-to-antibody ratio of 4 to 1 uh, versus the uh, other trastuzumab, can and sasituzumab that are 8 to 1 and 7.5 to 1, uh, respectively. Uh, Tropion Bresto 1 is an ongoing trial in the second and third line setting in patients with hormone receptor positive HER2 negative metastatic breast cancer. I mentioned that the a single arm trial in uh, pan tropion uh, will, in hormone receptor positive disease, will be presented as a poster spotlight by Funda Merrick Bronstein at this meeting. So that will give us a little bit more information. Of course, the abstract is online. Um, and then Tropion Bresto 1, however, started without that data and has already completed accrual in the U.S. Um, they, they actually capped accrual in the U.S. because they know that everybody who goes on the control arm, what would you do if your patient was randomized to gemcitabine and they progressed? You would give them TDXD, right? So that might mess up the survival benefit of DATO-DXD in this trial. So they capped the number of patients in the U.S., um, and there's a lot of patients in Europe and in China who will be enrolled in this trial uh, who don't have access to TDXD. So it's a little bit cleaner uh, picture in this trial population. Um, certainly my experience with the response has been excellent with DATO-DXD. Thanks, Hope. That's uh, fantastic. 
So I'm going to move us um, into this next section because we actually want to revisit our cases. And then we also have quite a few questions that are coming in. Okay, so let's get back to 74-year-old. This is an African-American lady who had invasive carcinoma. Um, She took the AI for four years. It's relapsed uh, five months later. So we do start fulvestrant palbociclib, as over 90% of you uh, suggested. She's a good response. Um, However, she develops progressive fatigue after 12 months of therapy. So question you know, how are you approaching side effects on these drugs? Um, you know, how would you help her manage her fatigue? Would you be thinking about dose reduction? Hope, maybe I'll ask you first. Uh, you know, a lot of it depends on the situation with the patient and, um, and how fatigued they are and what kinds of things we can talk about to manage their fatigue. Obviously, you want to rule out polypharmacy. Um, and there are many drugs that we use that cause fatigue, like gabapentin and um, some antidepressants over time. Um, and uh, I have patients taking, you know, CBD, THC kind of combinations. And so there's, you really want to look at that first. Um, but we do know that cumulative fatigue can be an issue, mostly in older women. It's interesting that fatigue is much more so. We sometimes use methylphenidate in patients, yeah. um, and that can be quite effective and people can sort of dose themselves as they need to uh, without a lot of toxicity in the majority of patients. Um, and then dose reduction, which I find it's helpful, but in my old ladies, you know, the ones in their 80s, I find that it works, but only for a little while, and then they get tired again. So, you know, you have to be thinking about all these things at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. Any, you any, also any, want to make sure they're not having, like, marrow infiltration or something. Yes, right, or hypothyroidism yeah. or yeah. everything else. Yeah. Any, any other comments? I mean, how are you guys thinking about dose reductions now? I mean, do you have worry about dose reductions being less, less efficacious uh, or feel pretty comfortable doing that and keeping patients on treatment. I think the big, big driver is, is the therapy effective. And if that's sort of the dominant, the answer to that is yes, then I would try to do everything I could to keep the patient on a given treatment, even if it required a dose reduction. And I don't feel like based on the dose de-escalation we have with most of these drugs that we're necessarily compromising efficacy in doing so. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a slide about the patient-centered dosing initiative. I know, um, Hope, I think you were involved uh, in this, but really kind of just looking at patients' ability to tolerate the recommended starting dose may differ in the real world versus clinical trial setting. Certainly, you know, we often hear the term kind of clinical trial Olympians, um, but, you know, when we're, we're putting it out amongst everybody, you know, not everyone is as hardy in clinical trial And also this kind of whole concept of MTD, that we really dose to where we can and kind of, you know, settle there. And the reality is that a lot of drugs may be quite efficacious, a little bit below the dose that we're really approving them at. So this was actually a patient-led initiative. Um, It was confidential online surveys um, developed by both patients and medical oncologists um, and kind of, you know, really getting at the patient perspective that metastatic disease is not curable but can be treated, and they don't want to just live longer, they also want to live well. Um, So a lot of patients resoundingly say that, you know, they would want to talk about dose reductions um, kind of more often. And so in the patient side of the survey on the left, you know, oncologist survey on the right, um, really over 1,200 patients respond to this, um, almost 120 U.S. oncologists, Um, 86% of patients reporting a 
at least one significant treatment-related adverse event. Um, and 98%, so this is a good number, patients experiencing adverse events did discuss them with their physicians. Um, dose reductions were employed in about two-thirds of the time. Um, medications to help with symptoms were prescribed in about 60%. And 83% of patients who ended up having a dose reduction actually felt better. And so 92% expressed willingness to, discover, to discuss alternative dosing options with their physician uh, based on their individual preferences. So when we look on the right side of the slide in terms of oncologists, um, physicians estimate that about 47% of patients reported a distressing treatment-related adverse event. Um, most common mitigation strategies, um, you know, really across the board, uh, supportive medications, palliation, lowering dose. Um, physicians reported a little bit less, 74% uh, patient improvement after dose reduction. So we kind of minimize that, whereas patients say that they actually felt a little bit better. Um, and 87% indicated that they have started patients on a lower dose for various reasons. 97% would be willing to discuss. So I mean, I think this is uh, really a conversation that's becoming more prominent. Um, and certainly, you know, there's been multiple trials that we've looked at data of do patients that dose reduce do any worse. And we have not seen uh, that in the trials that have been uh, looked at. So in our case, uh, so she's on fulvestrant palbociclib. She ends up having progression in the bone and in the liver. She has an ESR1, and her duration on fulvestrant palbociclib was about 26 months. She's, this is a patient who has um, asymptomatic progression of bone. She has 1.5 centimeter new liver lesions. I don't know how many, but, you know, generally, as I show papers, people the pictures in clinic, you know, liver's a big organ, and you can have one lesion, it's 1.5 centimeters, and, you know, this very endocrine phenotype, you know, yeah. hormone-responsive phenotype. And so you want to get the most mileage out of that hormone therapy you can because, you know, we've now seen lots of data that shows that giving the chemo earlier is not a help. So I think the, it is a great response. to Yeah, I agree. I mean, cert. looking at, you know, over two years on yeah. the last endocrine therapy, I mean, this isn't a patient that I want to jump to chemotherapy and not kind of visit more endocrine therapy with. So I, yeah. I completely agree with you there. And, and, and you have time for treatment failure. It's not a patient where you're with a back Literally. to the wall where you said the next treatment needs to achieve a response. If that next treatment doesn't work, you still have enough time to move on to, to chemotherapy or ADCs. So a question, you know, we, we had a, you know, a few kind of saying, well, I want to jump to ADCs. You know, neither trastuzumab, deruxtecan, nor sasituzumab were actually tested that first-line chemo. They'd all had a chemo line previously. So are you sticking to that, or are you ever thinking about giving it before? Well, I'm thinking about it, but I'm not <laughs> doing it. <laughs> so okay. particularly with trastuzumab. You're showing restraint? I'm showing restraint at this time, <laughs> but uh, probably my resistance to thinking about TDXD is weakening with uh, time, but right now I'm going by the eligible. But for this patient, no, I'd give that's her, not really what I'd you're give thinking. her a surge for all the reasons. Right, you're Even, just you're kind of thinking, you know, against chemo. Gosh, it's really comparing yeah, quite favorably exactly. to chemo. Yeah. But I, I also, I mean, it, you know, I'm I'm okay with waiting for Destiny Breast 06, the first line trial. I feel like you know, capecitabine for some patients very well tolerated. And they can stay on it. I mean, you know, some of our ear-positive patients with hormone-sensitive disease, okay, you've used the oral surge, you're done. I still would, if it's, look, if the patient has the same disease like this, I would give capecitabine because mm -hmm. I have people on it for a year and a half or two right. years. And 
that's really nice for the patients. They can travel. They're not, a, you know, you're not worried about their lungs and nausea, their et cetera. Hair. And they're thinning hair. So I think that, you know, there are some benefits. Now, if TDXD shows compared to largely CAPE, who knows, in destiny breast 06, that there's a big improvement in survival, I think that will obviously change what we want to do. But it's still chemotherapy and it's still associated with risk. And, you know, so I think it's reasonable to do the oral cert and then. Uh, cape. Now, if you have a patient whose liver is replaced with tumor, right, and you know you're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow, uh, liver enzymes are rising. This is a different situation. We just gave a patient TDXD who had developed metastatic disease. I was treated at a local hospital and came in with a bilirubin of 18, um, which then went up to something 36. I don't know, but she had um, she had gotten a cycle of Taxol Gem and a cycle of something, a Carbo from her doctor, but then her bilirubin just kept going up. So we stented her liver and then gave her just a little bit of TDXD. Her bilirubin's coming down. But <laughs> we'll see. I mean, so far, doing much better. But uh, I think in that situation, we might all want to give TDXD, just like, SAS, just like SASE and triple negative disease. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And you... So this is a slide really talking about overcoming disparities. Um, I feel like that's been a, a great theme of this meeting and has really been talked about in a quite meaningful way. So this is the Become uh, Research Project and really aims to better represent black people in cancer research by increasing access to clinical trials, um, ultimately uh, having black patients better represented on trials. Um, and so this was patient-led research and found that 8 out of 10 uh, black people living with metastatic breast cancer would consider participating in clinical trials. Um, only 36% of them report receiving as much information as they would have liked. 67% want information uh, from a person with some racial or ethnic identity. 64% uh, have difficulty finding trials, so really access um, and only 32% believe uh, treatment will be fair and equal. And if you were in the oral session today, I actually loved the slide that was uh, presented, you know, um, showing that, you know, regardless of what ethnic group a patient is in, if they're approached about clinical trial, those going on trial is actually pretty even across the board. Um, so I think sometimes uh, that's a misconception. So let's come back to now our premenopausal uh, patients on these cases. Uh, so this was our 42-year-old with the two-and-a-half centimeter lesion that had the surprise one positive lymph node, the low key 67 of 10%, and the oncotype score of 16. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? What would you do, Peter? Yeah, I think it makes sense. I mean, we, we, we spoke about <laughs> that if you see that, that in premenopausal women, you, you see even in the intermediate risk group, uh, no positive, you see a benefit from chemotherapy. And so I, I think that message is, 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 is coming through. Now, there are subtleties in this case. It's relatively low with an with oncotype of 16 and it's yeah. relatively low key of 67. Right. And so you could, you could argue... Are we doing the right thing in terms of the data? Yes, we are. Uh, these are some exceptional cases where, where, where some people would consider doing a second uh, genomic test, uh, do an endopredict test if you want to, and see, just, uh, see did you come up with, with a different result. But, but without that, uh, my steer would be towards chemotherapy. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I don't think that this is a patient that I'd really be thinking about <laughs> if I'm a cyclone, though. <laughs> yes, I agree. 
Okay, so let's move on to this one that Hope has um, nicely foreshadowed that we should be thinking about. <laughs> I'm looking at the it <laughs> so 43, um, and she ends up with 4.3 centimeters of cancer, eight positive lymph nodes, ERPR strongly positive. Same options, kind of. What are you thinking about? I mean, I think clearly this um, lady, unfortunately, is very high risk, right? So we're really wanting to give her pretty much everything we can to think about dose reduction. Certainly qualifies for vimecyclib just based on the fact that she has more than four positive lymph nodes. Um, and really, we wouldn't be thinking about risk stratifying assays, et cetera, with that degree of lymph node positivity. There were a lot of people who wanted to give a BEMA to the previous patient, right? Yeah. So that's a little perplexing, I think. Right. Um, just, I think it's a little bit hard for everybody to remember what the criteria are. Uh, but also, I think we hate the patients with positive nodes. So we want to do whatever we can to reduce risk. It's just that we don't have the data. If you have you know, a tumor less than five centimeters, one to three positive nodes, and a low key 67 and no grade three, you know, grade two right. or grade one. And not even that. She only had one positive node. I mean, right. it wasn't like she was three and well, on but the positive, they did, right? Monarch didn't differentiate yeah. one to three positive nodes. So... But um, it's hard because I think, you know, you do want to, in these cases, and I think we're not running into it with her too low, it's not helping. The pathologists don't like us about that one. But the um, for this, you know, you might want to go back and say, is it really grade two? <laughs> or, you know, one thing I've seen a lot is that patients have their core biopsy and that's all that's ever read. Mm -hmm. So you do want to go back and look at the, you know, the primary surgical sample, you know, if you didn't give preoperative treatment because, you know, you have a lot more tumor to look at. And so you might get a much more accurate reading. So just to mention that about that patient where somebody, people obviously wanted to give it even though they're not eligible. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so 43-year-old, um, same case. And so she gets adjuvant chemotherapy, dose-dense AC, followed by paclitaxel. She has radiation. Uh, she ends up going on gazarelin for ovarian suppression with letrozole, adjuvant zoledronic acid um, in March. She's then seen for a second opinion, and ultimately after that discussion in May, she starts adjuvant abimacyclib. So she's had a little bit of diarrhea um, for about the first month and a half, um, some low-grade fatigue for about six months. Neutrophils have actually held up pretty well. Um, she did take uh, two, about a month and a half break um, twice. Uh, but did remain on the ovarian suppression and letrozole. And kind of when she took breaks was around family events where she wanted to make sure that she had energy, et cetera. Symptoms did improve off therapy. Um, she's kind of anxious about continuing um, abimacyclib. What would you think about here? Peter? Well, you clearly have, an, have a challenge here with, with dose intensity. If the patient had two six-weeks breaks in the last six months, you, you, you're basically effectively giving 50% of the dose over six months. And, uh, and that suggests to you to some degree that we need to work with the dose and consider dose reduction. And, and what, what I sometimes do in those patients is, is you, you can, for example, change the evening or the morning dose rather than get taking the evening and the morning dose down. So gradually titrate it to a level where patients are ultimately happier with the dose and, 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 and adherence goes up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think particularly, you know, with a drug like abimacyclib, you need to, you know, this is not, you know, four cycles of chemotherapy and some, some you know, they're done. You're asking somebody yes. to stay on this for two years, yeah. right? And, and ultimately, if we don't make this more tolerable for her, um, you know, A, her quality of life is suffering and B, she's going to stop taking it, right? 
What is your initial management of diarrhea, Bill? I feel like we have multiple classes and uh, of drugs that cause diarrhea now, and you've gotten a little bit better at this. But for abemaciclib, kind of how do you initially manage the well, diarrhea? Well, I think what's, what's true of all of these drugs, not just the CD4-6 inhibitor that causes it, but any of the drugs that cause diarrhea, that you have to make sure patients are aware of it right from the get-go when you're initiating it, and <clears throat> that this is a potential side effect and that you do have things to do to mitigate that. Uh, because the last thing you want is a patient calling you from the bathroom where they've been for the last three days lodged on the toilet and saying, I can't do this anymore. So I think if you have steps that you've already talked to the patient about, if you encounter this, whether it's um, you know low modal or whatever it is, as well as dose reductions, and these would be steps you take to mitigate the side effects, you're more likely to be successful on maintaining the patient on a drug. Um, so I think both dose reduction and the other mitigating actions. Great. I think you have to not be afraid to dose reduce. I think that's really important. So one thing you can do, you know, you got to order the drug. So it's a little bit of a challenge in practice and some insurers require reauthorization. So you can actually have somebody just drop down to 150 a day um, and then order the 100 milligram tablets at the same time if they don't want to stop completely. You know, if it's going to be more than say a week's break in between drug, something like that. But you know, I think one of the most important things is education of patients and staff because, you know, you have to have people call in right away and not suffer, as Bill was talking about. Right. Um, and also this education about taking preventive uh, loperamide, but not too much of it. Yeah, exactly. Which is also really important. Yeah, if you go back to the experience when CAPE first came out, CAPE Cytobine, if you stuck by the FDA dose that's still there, uh, people thought they were going to die. And doctors thought they were killing patients. And once we learned that you could down uh, down uh, reduce the dose with the same efficacy, everybody was happy. Doctors were happy, patients were happy, and I think we're learning the same lessons with these drugs. Yeah. Dose reduction does not equal ineffective. And we we published a guideline on management also, which is I think helpful from Monarchy. So this really is just looking about abemaciclib discontinuations in uh, Monarchy. Over half of the early discontinuations uh, do. Uh, you know, happened in the first five months. Um, so kind of for any reason, this was about a quarter of patients. Endocrine therapy alone was about 15%. So put it, you know, into perspective that it, you know, kind of isn't all the abemaciclib. Um, and then uh, factors associated with increased risk of treatment discontinuation, older age, uh, postmenopausal, uh, one to three positive nodes uh, instead of, you know, four or more. So kind of AKA a patient's, um, you know, estimate of how high their risk is, right, for more pre-existing comorbidities. Um, and the highest rate of early discontinuation uh, was actually in patients 65 years of age or older, which was about a quarter. And then in terms of reductions, about 42% of patients actually had a dose reduction on trial. And I always kind of make sure that I keep this these numbers in my mind because you know, when somebody's in your clinic and they're kind of anxious about dose reducing, I think it's really helpful to tell them, look, you know, the trial was positive, And in fact, almost half of the patients dose reduced on the trial and it was a positive result. So you're not an anomaly, right? You're actually fitting into how the patients on the trial did. And I think that can be uh, quite reassuring. This is just a reminder about how um, our dose reductions for bimacyclib look. So I'm going to skip through this because we actually have a couple questions. Let's see if we can get to these. We'll take, I'll take deep breaths and try to do a mm -hmm. speed round. Um, 
Okay, let's, uh, let's, I'm going to ask Bill this one. So my question is about the use of RS Clin. Do you use it in clinical practice to decide treatment? Sometimes if you use it, some cases actually with a recurrent score less than 25 do have benefit with chemo. For example, 55-year-old, grade 2, 4 centimeters, and recurrent score of 23 actually has about a 5% benefit of chemo. Are you using that tool in your practice now? We do use it on occasion. I don't want to claim that we use it universally in every patient we see. But in circumstances where we may be uh, thinking that there may be a little benefit from chemotherapy, we do incorporate that in to try and validate our gestalt idea about that tumor. Great. Thanks. Uh, Hope, would you retreat with CDK4-6 inhibitor if a patient ends up relapsing with metastatic disease and they received adjuvant and bimacyclib? And if so, which one? I think a lot of it has to do with the timing and, you know, where they relapse, et cetera. So I think if it was, you know, more than a, maybe a year, two years, nobody really knows what the right duration of time is, I would retreat. I think given the data we have, you know, I'd use a different CDK4-6 inhibitor. So maybe I'd start with ribo. I don't, you know, I think that would be sort of a guess in that situation. We don't have any data on uh, sequencing in this setting. Uh, but if they still had very endocrine-sensitive-like disease, and relapsed a number of years after their abema. So, I mean, eventually we're going to see people who relapse, you know, at 8, 10 years off endocrine therapy and abema, but who got therapy in the uh, early, then I would retreat, yes, because I think it's so much better tolerated even so than other treatments. But, you know, by the time we have those patients who are far out, we're going to have lots of other drugs we can give patients too, capivacertib and others. Okay, Peter. Do you think abemacyclib is truly different? Are we going to have the same effect with other CDK4-6 inhibitors? And if not, what is the mechanism of action of abemacyclib that makes it beneficial in the adjuvant settings where maybe others aren't? I have absolutely no idea. Um, I mean, I, I, I think we, the drugs are relatively similar, but, but, but clearly abemacyclib is a, a slightly more, what we would say, off-target effects from, from CDK4 and, and 6 on the other hand, the, the activity in the metastatic setting is, is practically identical in, in, in all, all, all parameters. There is this hypothesis out there that the continuous application uh, as compared to the intermittent application with palmar ribocyclin makes a difference in there. That's, um, it's a hypothesis. Is that, is that what's driving the differential benefit we see as compared to, to palmocyclin so far? I'm not sure. It could just be a mix of different factors, longer duration of therapy, fewer dose reductions, higher, higher treatment adherence, possibly slightly higher dose intensity because the patients didn't have that one-week gap, and that was enough to, to make one study positive and the others negative. So I actually can't answer your question, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. and, you know, we haven't seen one of the adjuvant trials, right? We have, you know, negative PALBO data in the, in the adjuvant setting, et cetera. So it's still, still evolving. Um, Bill, does a patient's germline status influence your decision for ovarian suppression? For example, if a premenopausal patient has a BRAC mutation, do you think patients with BRAC alterations are more or less likely to benefit from ovarian suppression or unrelated? Well, I'm not sure I know the answer to that based on the efficacy of ovarian suppression in that patient. She's probably going to get her ovaries out and become postmenopausal. Right. Anyway. <laughs> So it's less an issue of, will ovarian suppression work? She's going to end up with ovarian ablation at some point. 
Yeah, absolutely. Hope if case that a biopsy isn't big enough or we don't have good tissue to test for PI3 alterations, would you test the original tumor or how are you testing for PI3? You mean if I haven't already gotten cell-free DNA? Well, I think that's the answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. So, you know, we do cell-free DNA. I will say that people have hormone receptor positive disease and bone-only disease that's well-controlled. The cell-free DNA fraction is very low. We showed in Bileave, and I think in Solar One also, that the fraction of cell-free DNA, mostly in Bileave, correlated with outcome that, you know, if you have a higher fraction of circulating uh, DNA, that your uh, actual prognosis is worse, which makes a lot of sense because it's sort of a reflection of tumor burden. Uh, it, and it didn't have to do with the mutation percent, it's the fraction of ctDNA. So there may be situations where you just can't get the answer easily. Sometimes a bone marrow aspiration will help because you can get cells that aren't decalcified, uh, but that's your, you know, your main option if you don't have a tumor that you can easily biopsy. We actually have gotten a fair amount of cells from doing FNAs, you know, aggressive FNAs from our group that help as well. Okay, uh, some educational and support resources uh, here that are available for patients, uh, even if you'd like to take these uh, back home. Thank you to Bill, Hope, and Peter uh, for joining me, uh, and we hope you enjoyed this. Thank you so much. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partners, GRASP and Living Beyond Breast Cancer. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YNC 860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Exact Sciences, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, Lilly, and Sanofi.